Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. What's going on, Nuggets fans? Welcome to another episode of Full Court Press, part of the Denver Stiffs podcast feed on the new SB Nation Network. I'm your host, Brandon Vogt. And in this week's episode, I sat down with Colorado Public Radio's Vic Vela. He's a host and a reporter there with a knack for finding human interest stories. He wants to know how events, how, how culture events affects you and I and the common man. Uh, and he's really good at it. And he released a, a piece about a month ago on public radio about Nuggets fans and, and the possibility of the cultural footprint of this team growing here. The Broncos are really struggling. Nuggets seem to be rolling. So it's a great piece. So we, we sat down and talked about that. We talked about his passion for Nuggets basketball in all sports, really. And, of course, if you know Vic, then you know he's pretty open and transparent about the adversity he's overcome and his path to recovery from several substances. And so he spoke openly about, you know, trying to be become a healthier person and, and what that process was like. It's a really great conversation. I, I hope you get a lot out of it, and I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado... Here's Full Court Press with Vic Bella. Okay, we're going to start off with the duet. Yeah, that's perfect. Highlands <laughs> uh, in the stream. <laughs> I think it might be best to start uh, with the most relevant yeah. piece of information, which is that, that Nuggets piece you did for oh, Colorado uh-huh. Public Radio recently, um, which the title, I just did my preparation, and I, the title is eluding me already of that piece you did. Do you, do you remember? <laughs> I don't even remember the headline myself. Yeah. But the, the story was about how Nuggets, um, you know, the Nuggets have not been the uh, team that people follow in this state. Uh, and that's been like that for a long time. It's the Broncos. It's Broncos, 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 and everyone else. But even among those teams that are everyone else, the Nuggets are behind, like the Rockies and the Avs in terms of, uh, of who, who gets talked about. So I just wanted to do a story to find out a little bit, you know, if, if that was true first of all, and why that's the case. Uh, and then I talked to you about it, which was really neat. And you had a really good, uh, uh, you know, uh, perspective from someone who uh, hasn't been here very long. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's yeah. why I'm, uh, I moved here, right? Just to cover the nuggets. <laughs> Your quote was the best, by the way. Would you, would you say you're the only person in the history of the world who... To move to Denver because of the nuggets? It's probably true. It really is. Uh, no, but that's... Uh, it was a great quote. I'm really glad you, you did that piece because that's the first thing I noticed when I moved here. And that's what I was, what I was writing about uh, in that article is just I was expecting to meet all these Nuggets fans. And even here, it's just like you said, it's Broncos, Broncos, Broncos. And even when the Nuggets are winning, you still sort of have to convince people that it's worth their time. Yeah. And I don't know where, I mean, you know, it's been like that since I was a little kid. Like, I remember in elementary school, I would show up, I would I would show up in a, um, you know, in my old, you know, Alex English jersey or whatever. And I was the only one. Everyone else was wearing Broncos stuff. I remember one time, and I got to find the photo at some point. One time I was uh, Doug Moe for, for Halloween. That's right. <laughs> the original inspiration for the Denver Stiffs, <laughs> Doug Moe. I was like, I don't even know how old I was, seven, and I'm dressed as this disheveled, <laughs> angry old man. Uh, and no one got it, of course, because uh, everyone wanted to be John Elway, right? right? 
Um, and then that was before the Rockies were even around. So, um, and let's face it, the Nuggets haven't given fans much to cheer about. No. Right? no We've had some a, great moments. But it's been a tortured history for mm-hmm. Nuggets fans. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, that was sort of your inspiration, right? So you're thinking, okay, there's a good Nuggets team here. There's, yeah. there's some sort of budding cultural shift. Have we reached that point yet, or are they still sort of like on the backseat, right? Is that sort of the thought that kind yeah. of, yeah. Yeah, and we're, I, th- I think the answer is, is, that, is we're getting there. Look at the sellouts uh, this year. For sure. You go to all the home games. You see it. You, you know, all the my reporter buddies I talk to who follow the Nuggets, and, and then the team, when I go to practice, it, which isn't often, but when I do, they do say that there is a, a – significant difference in terms of the energy it's a, it's night and day even from last year so when i moved here i was credentialed january of last season so i hopped in in the middle and there were some nights that were like embarrassing i mean you could hear your own thoughts you could hear a pin yeah. drop and it was I, I really started to understand oh this is one of the more sort of unfortunate kind of basketball traditions in the league uh, they've always really struggled and you really got that sense and then at the end of last season, they went on that little run, and you started to get these like playoff like atmospheres forming. And now it's every night it seems this season in the Pepsi Center. It's it, even if they don't win, it's a game worth watching, and the energy is just it's like worth being there. You know, it's exciting. I, I you know uh, we've had more sellouts this year, certainly more than last year, and and certainly more than I should say we had more sell. The Nuggets have had more sellouts than all of two years ago the entire season from two years ago. Yeah, that's right. And I think they'll definitely surpass last year's mark. No doubt. And I notice it too, Brendan. I, I go to a lot of games during the work week, which are typically the uh, don't have the biggest crowds. Uh, but even against those sort of, um, you know, teams who, who don't draw a lot, like Atlanta or something, I was like, this is a pretty good crowd for a whatever night that was, right. a Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. No, it doesn't have to be the Warriors or the Celtics anymore. And and you know what? The difference I noticed this season already is even when it is those teams, the ratio of away fans, visiting fans to Denver fans, it's much more favorable. Last season, if the Warriors were in town, oh, I would gosh. say it was more than half Warriors fans. And that, that was not the case this year. And that's always going to be the case with certain teams. And even the Broncos run into that. Yep. You know, yep. Uh, when I was growing up in the, in, you know, in the 80s, it was unheard of for any – if you showed up in a Raiders or Steelers jersey, you were going to get your butt kicked. Right. Right. Nowadays, there's so – It's a transplant city, It's basically. a transplant yeah. city. So even for the Broncos, they struggle with yeah. that. Right? And they sell out every game. Um, I think the Nuggets are getting there, man. I do. And, I, I, and then what I say to people when I – sometimes I'll call it out on social media or Twitter. I'm like, guys – Follow this team. Right. I mean, this team is, how is this team not a team that's worth rooting for? Right. How do you not root for a team, even their biggest star is sort of not a household name in America? Yeah, you know, I think that's, Jokic and this team, to your point, it's perfect for Denver. Because it's not that sort of flashy, like, coastal star, you know? He doesn't transcend culturally. He's just a dude. <laughs> and and I think that's what makes this team so fun to root for. It's like it's organic, right? It has that feel of of it's it's for Denver. It happened here in Denver and it wasn't like this sort of contrived effort to bring a bunch of talent in or whatever. It's they're a team worth rooting for. Right. Um if you're a fan and and even if even if you're a bandwagon fan, which there's going to be a lot of them especially as we get closer to the for sure to the playoffs. 
but that's fine. This team deserves it. And I can't imagine what that arena is going to be like if slash when they make the playoffs, uh, and especially if they have a high seed that place is going to go bananas. That's see, that's the irony to the the typical struggle with attendance. When they do come, when the crowds are strong, it's really electric in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you're right. The playoff games, knock on wood, uh, they should be pretty awesome. I'm so. jealous. You're the one who's going to be covering that stuff, man. I like to pat myself on the back. <laughs> this was a this was a plan. I saw this team as they were good enough, but no one seemed to care. So maybe I could sneak in the back door. <laughs> Um, what, so what was your process for creating that piece? I mean, what was step one for putting this all together? Typically I've, um, gone through a lot of evolutions in my reporting over the years. I did a lot more harder reporting, uh, when I was younger, I did investigative pieces. I did crime in courts. I did politics. Right. Nowadays, as a, as, as I'm more of a news anchor slash host, I get to be a, a little more selective in terms of the stories I want to do. And at this point in my career, I really like doing those human interest slash sports stories. I really like focusing on, for lack of a better way of putting it, humans. And what, what we sometimes get lost when we talk about any news, whether it's news or sports or anything, is we forget to talk to the people who are actually most affected by it, mm. right? Um, when I was at the Capitol, hundreds of bills would come out of that. Uh, building and we would talk to the lawmakers or we talk to the governor or whatever and we'd write a story or tell a story and sometimes it's like maybe we should go outside the constituents the people and right? talk to the guy who is who's going to be impacted yeah. by this right yeah. so that man on the street stuff and so anytime i do almost any time i do a story nowadays i really try to incorporate joe blow right because he's the guy i like I don't want to hear politics speak. I don't want to hear someone who's rehearsed in how he talks. I just want to talk to the fan at the bar who's watching the game because that's real. It's authentic. And you came down to our, our Stiffs yeah. hangout. Uh, I think it was the Memphis game. Great timing, by the way. You picked the start of the one and six slide <laughs> for your Nuggets piece. I had to apologize on Twitter, I think. Uh, uh, when I started doing reporting on that, they lost, well, I don't even know how many games in a row that was, but yeah, it was, it was like bad. Four game <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Um, but you got to talk to... You know, some of our readers who are that like that passionate, yeah. that small but but rabid fan base that exists. Here. Yeah. And uh, did they gave you gave you good stuff? Oh, I it's hope. great. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. And, and the, the thing about Nuggets fans is that I think I talked to you about this a long time ago. It, they kind of remind me of soccer fans. Hmm. You know, they will be the they will be the first person to tell you that they are a Nuggets fan. That's the first thing out of their mouths. Right. right? And they want to educate you it's on like a vegan. It right? is. Yeah. <laughs> It is. A, it's a. It's almost like a cult. If if there is such a thing as a cult following for a major professional sport, it, that's kind of what it feels like. Because Nuggets fans are so proud, right? Because they know you had the another perfect quote, um, which I don't remember if I used in the piece or not. But you sort of compared Nuggets fans were like the uh, the land of the misfit toys, right? Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. It's a bunch of people who are brought to very different people, especially now with the sort of transplant thing going on too. But they're, they're brought, there's one common denominator and it's this thing that no one else cares about, you know, not even basketball fans. And we can see that now because the Nuggets probably have the most impressive resume in basketball. And it's like pulling teeth trying to get these national analysts to talk about them. It's They have culturally, they just don't resonate. They don't. And I think, you know, and to be fair to the Nuggets, 
you could say the same about a lot of West Coast teams who are not the Lakers or Golden State. Really, in any sport, west of the Mississippi, for anyone to get attention, you know, is hard. And it's annoying, right? Yeah. The Rockies have had great years the last couple years, but you get anyone to talk about the Rockies outside of Denver, it's not going to happen. I grew up in New Jersey, so the New York market, and I spent two years in L.A. So I've been on both coasts. The coastal bias thing is real. It's not talked about what's happening. You know what I see, and I don't want to call anyone out, but go through some of the Twitter feeds of some of the big names, the big media names out on the East Coast, and see who they follow. Mm. I'm usually hard-pressed to see them following a lot of people out West. We really don't exist. Right. And, <laughs> and, it, and, it's, and if you are talking West, you're talking California. <laughs> California, that's people it. People hadn't even been to Colorado where I grew up. So maybe they'd flown to California for vacation. But the idea of like, so I still have this. Sometimes I wake up and I'm driving around and I'm like, where the hell am I? Yeah. Because this is one of those places that, I don't know, I didn't even think about as a kid. And that's what makes the Broncos historically so uh, uh, impressive. Right. In right. terms of, because they're the one team that will always get national attention here out west uh the other teams it's going to take a while but winning kind of does that you know no one wanted to talk about golden state before they started winning even though they're a large market right well not really oakland's kind of a smaller market compared to san francisco but that's where they still play right you know they're in oakland and so you know it just takes a while and and i think it's we're we're as you know, Brendan, we're, some of these little baby nuggets are still growing up in front of our eyes. We don't even know how good Jamal Murray's going to be yet. Right. Right? Right. No, there's there's this weird feeling of the sky is the limit, right? But that's juxtaposed with the history here in Denver and an expectation of coming up short and, and feeling deflated and disappointed. And so you get that. There's almost like this excited tension, I feel. It's like palpable with Nuggets fans right now. I feel that. Yeah, I do. I do. I think and I think also there is that collective holding our breaths because this team has come so close the last two years. You can't miss the playoffs. Nope. Heads will roll no matter how good things look now. (laughs) You cannot. The Nuggets cannot miss the playoffs. And this is a uh, you know, these fans have been really teased the last couple of years missing out by just one single game. That's when you when you play that many games in a season it comes down to one single game that is brutal and that's taxing on a fan base right two seasons around especially with the injuries so then you get off to the hot start one in six slide sneaks in there and then you get hot again in the injuries and you go oh man it's happening again even going back to game two barton goes down (laughs) and you just see people with their head in their hands this can't be real i had to have some therapy sessions (laughs) i went to you at a game and I pulled up a chair while you're trying to work. I'm like, I need you to talk me off the ledge. <laughs> and I even texted Nick Cosmider, who covers the Nuggets for the Athletic. Solid I said, name drop. I said, Nick, <laughs> I just texted Nick, help me, help. <laughs> are, is, are we doomed? We just lost to Atlanta. Uh, I have a little more faith now. Right. Because holy cow, what this team has done. And I love what you've done on Twitter and other other Nuggets reporters have done on Twitter, starting to get that ball moving on. Listen, this Coach Malone, he needs to absolutely be at the top of the list for Coach of the Year conversations. I couldn't agree more. 
Nikola Jokic is getting a lot of the credit right now, as he should, and, and you're hearing these MVP conversations. But to me, the most compelling case for an award in Denver is Malone. And it's for this team to be in the top five in defensive rating after the way they've looked in years past with the roster that they have. And Malone was laughed at for his, his efforts, for his insistence on, on, on making this a def- defense-first team, and it's working. And that's why they're winning despite the injuries, not just because Jokic is playing well, because their identity is his identity, and that was something that none of us thought was possible. Oh, my gosh. The Nuggets play defense. And as someone who's followed them for many, many years, that it, it continues to blow my mind. I'm looking. I'm like, wow, the Nuggets are holding this team under 100 points, which <laughs> was, you know, I remember how many times I would curse at the television when we would uh, miss a layup or something, and then there's a fast break opportunity the other way, and then we have no transition defense. Right. And we just get killed, and we're giving up like 120 points or something. I'm like, well, at least they're entertaining games. That's even kind of been the Nuggets' mo, right? Yeah, historically, yeah, entertaining, but at the cost of some of that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so just that that alone. I mean, you t- a guy who's navigated uh, three of our starters have been out for uh, what could be long stretches of time, or has been long stretches of time. Combine that with what you said, the focus on defense. How how is he not in that conversation for coach of the year? Has to be. I think he's the favorite. Are you? Have you always been a sports fan? Because you, yeah, you sort of, I guess, break some of the mold for the traditional understanding of sports. <laughs> You're like a, a fish guy, a deadhead. <laughs> you got kind of a different background. That's not necessarily a jock, I would say. I am not a jock. Well, and also I'm gay, right? And so there's there's a few things I sort of throw left handed monkey wrenches at when it comes to this stuff. I grew up. Oh yeah, I my dad coached me in every sport uh, when I was young. Uh, he was a big time football coach. Um, and, um, you know, so I grew up playing the, the traditional sports. I played baseball for many, many years. Um, when I was in college, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go and become a sports anchor when I was in, in high school. So sports were very much a part of my fabric. But I was never one of those guys who did that. I was never a jock talker. Right. I, I like you say, I, I spent most of my time uh, at dead shows or fish shows, uh, you know, eating a bunch of LSD or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not, you know, typically not what a lot of guys who, who like going to sports are doing. Right. Right. Um, and uh, yeah. And, and then also being gay, you know, I grew up at a time. This was the 80s and 90s when. Look, it just wasn't as as accepted. Uh, and you're in Longmont. Yeah, Colorado, I grew up in right. small, small yeah. and at the time Longmont was a lot smaller than right. what it is now. And culturally, I'm sure it was different. With the rural kind of exactly. Yeah, yeah, very. Um, it's not what it is today. Mm. Um, and so I had sort of a, a uh, maybe a different evolution than a lot of other guys into who wanted to go into sports, uh, and. Um, yeah, but it makes it interesting if you're, you know, who wants to just be the same person all right. the time? No, I agree. I think that's what makes you sort of an interesting person to talk to <laughs> about it because it's, again, breaking some of the molds and the expectations. <laughs> it's nice being able to, like, do a, uh, uh, you know, maybe I'm doing a sports highlight on talking about what happened in a game last night on the air and then throwing in a little Grateful Dead reference at the end to just to annoy my editors. No, right. I'm just kidding. Editors, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let me ask you this, and this is a, a loaded question, okay. and it's I'm sure it's going to spark maybe a, a loaded conversation. Sports are my favorite form of escapism 
but they're ultimately very trivial, right? In the grand scheme of things, this is this is not splitting the atom. This is not saving a life, what we're doing here. We're just talking about basketball. Do You have uh, sort of an interesting background. I mean, you, you've overcome a lot of adversity, and, and do you find sports as – like like an escape in that way because it's it's not really rooted in anything too significant or sometimes you sort of have trouble kind of latching on to it and, and and pouring passion into it yeah that i think that's an excellent that's a really interesting question i'll answer that as best as i can um you alluded to some of the things i've had to overcome for those listening i'm really open about the fact that i am a recovering drug addict i i was a heavy drug user uh cocaine through most of my year uh, years crystal meth and then that culminated in in a daily uh, crack co- crack cocaine habit uh, and I've been uh, sober for going on four years now recovery changed me in just about every way in my life I was a guy man who would go to these games uh, you know I can't tell you how many times I got into fights at these at, at the Bronco Stadium at Nuggets games I'm when we had the playoff series with the Lakers in 10, I guess mm. that was really heated uh, moments there. And I would just get drunk and high on cocaine and, and want to fight Lakers fans. Uh, <laughs> what well, the last part, a lot of us can relate to. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and the same thing, like if the chiefs came to, to mile high stadium, you know, um, I, I took it very, I was not very healthy. I was an angry person with a lot of resentment and a lot of times that would manifest in stupid things that I did I also grew up a a huge Cubs fan and this was I didn't know that well this was long before the Rockies came okay and then but we a generation of Cubs fans were born from WGN in the 80s right yeah because they were on TV every day and I'm a little kid so for the longest time I was a Cubs fan and I remember one time (laughs) when the Cubs got swept in a playoff series I think it was this 07 or something. I was I was drunk and high, and I threw all of my Cubs gear into my fireplace. And my partner at the time had to stop me from lighting a <laughs> lighting a match and setting everything on fire. So literally, almost literally, everything was a dumpster fire for me. Um, when I got sober, sports became so much more of a beautiful thing hmm. because you were right. It, it, in the grand scheme of things, it's just a couple guys playing basketball. It doesn't really matter. And so I'm able to just appreciate it for what it is. If my team wins, that's great. If they don't, that's fine, right? Life goes on. It's also sports. The other thing that's beautiful about sports is it's the one thing you can talk about without, um, you know, if you are talking to someone from rural Colorado, right? And you, you, or that, someone from rural Colorado is talking to someone in the city, you can talk about sports. And, and you can actually get along. It's in today's world that is as important as ever. I found, and I, I have really good friends and working relationships with people that I happen to know. We really differ politically, socially, whatever. It's never come up, and it's never sort of affected the way I feel or look at a certain person. Which is, I mean, that's rare in in this environment in this world. And it's a shame how people, because we're so polarized in so many ways. You know, it's it may be hard for some liberals to maybe s- support John Elway because right. he's conservative. But come on. Or, the same is true for if you're a uh, someone in living in Texas who's following the Spurs and you're conservative. But Popovich is, is very progressive in how he talks, the head coach there. 
I have a problem with with people when we can't see past uh, politics and ideology that we can't just get along, right? And that's the beautiful thing about sports for me since I've been sober is I really just look at it as that outlet of let's just enjoy this for what it's worth. Our, my life does not depend on whether the Nuggets win. Right. 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 They're going to try really hard to win. And so is the other team. And it's going to matter to you in that window of time, right? From yeah. tip up to the to the final buzzer. Like, it does matter. Yeah. But you can sort of take a breath now and, and take a step back and remove yourself from, like, the – it's just a game. Right? Well, in, in recovery, I, I'm I'm a Buddhist. I, I study Buddhism a lot, and I try and stay present. Um, and in Buddhism, you know, you can't uh, – my happiness uh, cannot be contingent on circumstance. Mm. Because that just creates suffering. If, you know, oh, you know, if the Broncos don't win the Super Bowl, I'm just going to be miserable. Well, you probably are if that's how you view life. You can't, you know, you have to just ex- stay present and, 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 and enjoy things when they happen, certainly. But we get into the, these situations in our life where everything tends to be a roller coaster, right? And that creates a lot of suffering. When you're not high, you're low and vice versa. Right. It was like when I was getting high, everything was an extreme. I was either really high and happy or really low and miserable. And who wants to live like that anymore? So, uh, yeah, I think sports, getting back to your point, uh, is a really is a great way for us to come together. You've been sober for four Almost four, four years. years. Almost four years. And that's, am I right in saying the vast majority of your adult life, you were not sober. Oh, that that's right? right. Yeah. Going all the way back to high school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, early high school when I, when I would really party a lot. Yeah. What was there like a catalyst for that? I've, when it's over that course of time, I imagine it just becomes like, this is all I've ever known. Can you remember sort of like how or why that happened? Uh, that's a really good question. And I think that's something that, that it's impossible for an addict to answer while he's still using. Right. Uh, and it's something that we really we don't really want to do a lot of soul searching while we're still using. Um, in recovery, I've learned that my problems went back f- well before I ever picked up a drug. You know, uh, I, I had a lot of problems growing up. Growing up gay, as I talked about, that's not an easy thing to do for anyone even nowadays. But back in the day when it wasn't ex- as accepted, I was closeted and, you know, in high school. And that's hell. I mean, that's hell. That's torture. Yeah. And not to feel like you couldn't talk to anyone about that. That was big. And then my dad, I love him to death, but he was also an alcoholic. He had his, a lot of struggles, and that that really played out in our household. Uh, so that caused a lot of angst. Um, we struggled financially. So there's all this stuff going on for a little boy to have to deal with. And that would usually play out with me acting up. You know, I would you know, throw chairs in the classroom. I would curse at the teachers. I'd get kicked out of class because I had all these problems going on that I didn't know how to deal with. But as I found in high school, the one thing that I was able to learn how to do was self-medicate. I can drink or get stoned or take this dose of acid or whatever. All of a sudden, all my problems are more manageable. They're either more manageable in that moment or they're just gone. And I could be happy, and this is a great feeling. And when the drugs wear out, then I want them more, and then I want to do other drugs. And they always wear out. And they all the drugs always run out. Yeah. So that's 
so when you're a little boy struggling with all this pain and you find something that makes the pain go away, why wouldn't you use it? And that's what I did. And then as it, as through adulthood, it just became, this is just what I do. Like people are like, how do you, how do you use drugs every day? I'm like, well, how do you brush your teeth every day? You didn't know how to not do it. It was just part of your life. Did I know it was bad for me? Yeah. But it's, it's that thing of the devil, you know, mm. This is just who I am. And the thought of changing my life was really scary because I didn't know how to live a normal life like the guy who could just wake up, go to the gym, work, come home, maybe have a couple happy hour drinks with his buddies. Read a book or something. And, but then that's it. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting about you and because we've talked, you know, privately and, and you know, I've, I've done some research on you, if you will, and you've always stayed you might laugh at this word choice somewhat functional yeah yeah you've maintained you've been you've worked your whole life and you said you know you always knew you wanted to be a sports anchor and you ended up becoming one is that right yeah right out of college i i was hired for an nbc affiliate in texas you know i was interviewing jerry jones from the dallas cowboys and bobby knight and uh and you know it's it's uh west texas and friday night lights i mean it was when you're a guy in college and you want to be on TV, that's like a dream job covering sure. all that stuff, yeah. right? Um, and then, you know, from there, I, I also hosted a morning show here in Colorado. So I I had a dream to be on television and to talk about sports and to be funny and be goofy. And I achieved that at a very young age. But you mentioned the word functional, and I think that's, that's a really good point. Um, I guess for a long time, I really kind of was the poster child of, of, uh, being the functioning addict while I had all this misery going on in terms of getting high every day, I was still able to put myself together, go out in front of the camera, tell a good story. Um, and that's something that, uh, that, uh, I was able to do for a long time. Um, but as I learned in recovery and I say a lot in meetings, a functioning addict is really just a dysfunctional addict in training. <laughs> yeah. So the idea of you like holding that job down while doing some serious hard drugs is it actually blows my mind. I, I was doing cocaine every day. I would go uh, before I'd go on the air. Um, I would go in the makeup room, put on a tie, put on my makeup and just do rails of cocaine off the toilet seat. And then I'd go in front of the camera hey, this is Vic with sports, blah, blah, blah. And did, did people have any idea? No one, no one knew. And I think people would just, I've always had this, even sober, I guess I've always kind of had this kind of, um, you know. Uh, Happy disposition. Yeah, or? like like um, animated mm. is, a, is a, maybe a good word to describe it. Um, so uh, people would just kind of, oh, that's just Vic. He's just kind of happy and, and, and playful. And that's true. Like my real self is that. But uh, when you're happy and playful, it's easy to disguise it because nobody suspects that someone is just doing cocaine in the newsroom. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it's not something that, that really people suspect. Yeah. Um, especially when they don't see a problem. Like we have these we, it, we still have this image in our heads. What does a drug addict look like? And I think a lot of people will say, well, he's that guy who's passed out on the on the bench right there, you know, uh, panhandling, right, uh, or breaking into our house and stealing our TV to, you know, yeah, those guys, a lot of those guys are, but most of us aren't that extreme. Most of us 
are 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 hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Do you think you said you so you're are you 23 at this point or at this point? Yeah. So and you're seeing your face on billboards. You're, you're interviewing yeah. some of your heroes. Would you say that this is sort of fueling some of that, like like detrimental in terms of your addiction and especially with the cocaine stuff? Oh, the ego. Absolutely. Yeah. And also going back to being gay, like so here I am, you know, I'm this young single guy. I'm seeing my face, as you said, like on a billboard or something. And then I, when I'd go after my sh- after the 10 o'clock news, I'd go to maybe a gay bar and it was always a trip because sometimes they'd have the big screen on and they'd be replaying the, the newscast late at night and I'd be picking up on guys saying, see, that's me on TV, right? It just feeds your ego. And cocaine is very much a, um, you know, a hedonistic drug. Right. It is just, this is fun. Let's do it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, and that's a lot of the stuff that, that was always the hardest part for me and I think a lot of addicts to come to grips with when we decide to get sober is l- learning how to rein in that ego and and exercise some humility. This, and that's something, huh? What is that? What's right. humility? Right. Uh, that's something that's totally foreign to us. Um, uh, yeah, but that, that was a big deal. And how long... Does this last? This uh, oh years. I yeah. did. I for years and years and years. I did. I did heavy drugs. You know. I, you know, and, and ultimately it was just one consequence after another. I went. I, I was. I couldn't afford anything because it was all going up my nose. I was getting fronted large quantities of cocaine from a from drug dealers that I was supposed to just use to sell and then kind of, you know make a little money but also kind of pay for my habit mm. in theory that's a great idea but none of that happened <laughs> it just all went up my nose right. and then you know hundreds of dollars later oh i don't have many money to give this guy so i got beat up by a drug dealer once had a gun pointed at me by by a drug dealer once which you said should have probably been a wake-up call yeah. for you yeah it was not no because you know when the guy who 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 the drug dealer who beat me up um, the minute I got up off the floor and dusted myself off, I'm covered in blood, bruises. The first thing I asked him is, can you front me some more cocaine? That's insanity. Right. But that's, that's addiction, you know? And for me, when you're an addict and you're using, that's a, you know, it, did I get my butt kicked? Yes. But am I walking out of here with cocaine? Yes. That's a well, win. That's a win. Man. And that's insane. Uh, but but for years and years and years, you know, uh, I would uh, things would just fall apart around me and it, it wouldn't matter. It was like uh, it was like that, um, you know, that meme or that gif you see of this the, is fine. This <laughs> is fine. You know, yeah. uh, and the flames are burning around you. But the guy's sitting there with a cup of coffee. I mean, this is fine. Right. As long as I'm high. As as Do you how much I don't know if you can even answer this question. How How much room? is left in your your conscious for the other things family relationships like even just your train of thought when i'm using dialogue yeah nothing yeah not drugs always come first i remember one time man i was uh on a date um with a guy who was a really nice guy he seemed like you know but um midway through my date after a couple margaritas i'm just jonesing i'm like i need to get high and so i'm under i have my cell phone under the table while he's talking about uh, life and I'm texting my dealer 
I'm like, hey, can I hook up with you soon? He says, oh, I'm actually leaving town in half an hour. You got to come see me now. And so I was faced with a choice. I either have to just wait it out and get drugs another time, or I bail on my date in the middle of dinner. And for a drug addict, there is really no choice. I'm That's like, an easy one. See you, dude. Yeah. I got a something came up. Everything, you know, took a backseat. Um, work will get done when I'm ready. When, when you know, you know, if I have to drive through a blizzard to get drugs, that has to happen. All other plans with mom and dad, my boyfriend or whatever. If I can get to it, I could get to it. Just the drugs at the top. I, I, I kept, Brendan, when I got sober, I kept some, uh, I would write on reporters' notebooks, uh, like my budget for the month sometimes. And I'd write my salary and I'd write my, and you write on the other column, your expenses like rent, utilities, or whatever. Before rent, utilities, expenses, there was, I would put a big X and that meant drugs. Everything else had to, whether I paid everything else depended on whether I had enough money for drugs. Yeah. Is there a nadir? Is there a breaking point or is it all, I mean, does it all blend together you, at that point? You, you hope that there's a breaking point and you hope that you get people get help, but some people don't. Some people, there's never a breaking point. Some people, there's not even a breaking point when they go to jail right. or, or their spouse dies from a heroin overdose or something. Drugs, it's the one disease that we have where the symptom is it does everything in its power to convince you that you don't have a problem. Mm -hmm. That's the symptom of our disease. And so what is it? What is it that ultimately helps you, I guess, resurrect yourself in a sense? I, a lot of people ask what my rock bottom was, and I think everyone's rock bottom is different. For me, it was just a you know, a constant digging myself a hole so I couldn't see out of anymore. For me, it was just pure exhaustion of just being tired of living that lifestyle. Just damage control 24-7. Damage control all the time. Like I would, you know, when I was, I didn't have any more money and I, you, you could only make up 23 excuses why you didn't pay your, your car payment or your, or your rent. Um, and, and, you know, and, and when you go to friends or family and when you're trying to borrow a few hundred bucks, the, I can't even tell you the, the hundreds of excuses I would try and come up with that were very creative <laughs> and, and sometimes they work, but then ultimately then your friends stop calling you back. Then your parents start putting their foot down. Then all of a sudden, wow, I'm alone. Um, the guy you're dating doesn't want to have anything to do with you anymore. Now, all of a sudden, I'm sitting in my bedroom alone with a crack pipe with no money. I haven't slept. You know, I don't have a job. What am I supposed to do? Is this really how I want to live with the rest of my life? And for me, that's what it was. Uh, it was very much a, um, um, how do you call it? Just tired of being tired. Right. Yeah. And, and you need, and it's it's help, right, from the outside? I, mean, I, I watched, um, you gave a... A speech earlier in the month, right? At what what was the uh, the hot issues in health? Yeah, it was um, uh, it was a big speech at uh, the uh, Colorado Health Institute's annual conference, which is called the Hot Issues in Health, and they asked me uh, it, it, to share my story. And uh, 
Um, and that's something I've done a lot in recovery. I go to a lot of rehab centers. I share my story. That one was different. It was the first time I shared my story in front of just uh, what we call normies, regular people. Like I've shared my story in front of drug addicts. That's easy because we all get each other. The judge that judgment is is probably not there. Right? Yeah, and there wasn't any judgment here either. But but internally for you, exactly right? the fear of judgment. Yeah, I should say. exactly. Yeah. And so, but it, it it's given. And, and and I'm I'll be speaking um, at another uh, health conference uh, next month, and I'm um, I continue to talk and and try and mentor people who are trying to stay sober. I mean, that's why I talk about this stuff. It's not because I want people. It's not because I like the sound of my own voice. It's because someone needs to tell people that this is what drug addiction is. We see the numbers. The numbers are well reported. You know, X amount of people died from overdoses last year compared to blah, blah, blah. We report that stuff all the time on Colorado Public Radio, and we do fantastic work, and so do other news organizations. But what sometimes gets lost is the human face of addiction. Because I think when I'm able to tell my story, it can do a few things. It can, one, register with the person who's going through something right now and let them see that I get you, but there is a way out. It also helps maybe the mom or dad who has no idea what their kid is going through because their kid's not going to be honest with them, right? And, you know, um, and what I've seen since I've been open about this stuff is the Twitter messages and the uh, Facebook messages I get from people is just unbelievable, uh, people saying, thank you for being open about this. I, I've i been sober for seven days now. Or I just went to my first meeting today. Strangers telling me this. Right. It's beautiful. Because the more we can talk about our problems, the the less scary they are. And f- I think in, in people in that position, in your position, a large part of it has to be about knowing that you're not alone, right? And yeah. it's one thing to know, okay, okay, there are other people like me out there, but to hear the story of, of with a happy ending, you know, yeah. a story of hope and recovery, not just a story of despair. And I, I can only imagine that it takes it takes those types of stories. It takes people who can relate to you reaching out in that, whether it's direct or indirect to sort of lift you up. Cause it just can't be done on your own. Yeah. You need a community of support. Yeah. And I think there are some people who, who have successfully stayed sober on their own and more power to however you get sober is right. Great. Right. But there's also a difference between sobriety and recovery. Mm. Anyone can get sober. You can get sober in jail. But are you recovered? And that's that's the bigger, that's the most important piece. When the drugs are no longer in your system, now what? What are you going to do about those things that drove your using to begin with? And the only way I was able to get help with that was through other people who have gone through the same thing as I have. Um, and, and so... Uh, going out of my way to to find a community of support friends who who also can go to those same concerts i would go to and see fish and stay sober surrounded by drugs go to broncos games or nuggets games where everyone's drinking beer and stay sober because you have people with you to support you community community is so important and i think that that's we can we can accomplish anything in community we really can 
what piece of of advice would you give to the family members of someone who's struggling? Because I I feel like that dynamic is often the most overlooked and yeah. and and just really heartbreaking because like you said, they're not going to be honest with you, right? And so if if you had any sort of advice to share. The the first thing I say is is that per, please understand that that son or daughter or whatever who is talking to you right now is not well. That person is very sick. And so the lies and the manipulation and the this and the that and the excuses, that's not them. Um, there is something deep inside of them that wants to get better, but they don't maybe know how. And they, ha- and they haven't even begun to that process of even asking whether they even want to get better. Um, you know, some people ask, well, what, what, you know, I've been asked by some people with good intentions, could you please reach out to my son or daughter or whatever? And I say no, because, and I'll tell you why. It's like, if, if someone wants to reach out to me, that's great. But if someone's not ready to get sober, it doesn't matter. You can have a rehab center on every corner of the block in Denver. If you're not ready and willing to change, it's not going to matter. I tried to get sober through the most expense, you know, uh, this 28-day program many years ago in Estes Park. A very expensive, nice place. You know, celebrities have gotten sober there, right? I wasn't ready to get sober. And the day I checked out, I got high. But I was able to stay sober this time around by going to free meetings, outpatients, going out of my way to find those meetings because I was ready to get sober. So I think that's the biggest advice I give is that is that show love, never give up on your loved ones ever. But understand, too, that sometimes it is like talking to a wall and uh, if they're not ready to get sober, it's not going to matter what you say. Because consequences don't matter to drug addicts. Otherwise, you know, when judges you know, wag their finger at them and say, you better straighten out or I'm going to have to lock you up. Well, we wouldn't have a drug problem if, if, if that, that worked. If that uh, worked, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I, I really, really appreciate you being so transparent about it. Not just now in this conversation, but in general. I mean, I think drug use, mental health. You never know. Sometimes it's funny you talked about maybe hope it like you worry sometimes about how it's received. Like, oh, this guy just likes hearing himself talk or, or whatever. <laughs> but it really can if, it, if it's just one person, right, that hears it and it helps them. It, it's worth it. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's that old, uh, uh, it's going to sound very cheesy, but it's that old line from, um, you know, someone, there's a bunch of starfish swept up on the on the shore and there's hundreds of them, right? And and there's uh, the guy throws one of the starship uh, starfish back in the ocean, and someone says, "Why? You, why? That's not going to make any difference because there's like hundreds and thousands of these guys washed up on the shore." He says, "Well, I just made a difference for that one." And um, you know, you're right. It's like not everyone. Uh, my message, any recovering addicts message, is it could very well just go over people's heads because they're not ready, and that's okay. Um, and even the ones who may sound like they're ready may, may not be ready because then they'll relapse two weeks later or something. That's okay too. Um, but for that person who can just hear one thing and, and that gets them to 
talk to someone, make a phone call, just something. doesn't mean they're going to get sober right away, but just something that puts in motion uh, that could be on their, that could put them on their way. Do you find it helps you in turn with your recovery? Oh, yes. Like therapeutic almost. That, that's what we, yes, I have to. This is like, um, you know, in, in, to use a sports metaphor, it's like, it's like practice, mm. right? And why do you practice? So you can get better and you can and stay at the top of your game. The, the, I have to um, talk about addiction. I have to help others. That's like uh, lifting weights for me, right? Right. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, man, I, yes. I like to end these pods with a segment called About the Author. Just a bunch of questions. Right. These ones are not drug-related, so congrats. <laughs> um, you're off the hook here. Favorite story you've ever worked on? Because I know you, you've done crime, you've done politics, human interest. That is a really good question. Um, I'll give you two answers really quickly. One, uh, most recently I did a fun story, or I should say this year, uh, I did a story on the 40th anniversary of the Broncos' first Super Bowl, uh, those old Orange Crush teams. And I got to talk to those old players from the 70s, Randy Gratishar, Billy Thompson, uh, old radio guys like Larry Zimmer. And I brought my dad into the story because he was a season ticket holder in the 70s. It was, it was absolutely, it was a historical piece. And it was one of the, it was, I had a blast putting it together. Uh, one of the most meaningful stories I worked on was when I was in New Mexico and I worked for the Albuquerque Journal. And this is the story I tell people like what why is journalism so important? You know, there was this little boy who was uh beaten to death uh by his uh mom's boyfriend. And it was just terrible. This little 3-year-old cute little boy just gone. And so I did some reporting. I did some digging through court documents and other, um, you know, through uh, public records requests. I was able to uncover that this boy never had a chance and that several state agencies failed him. Child, whatever uh, Children's Youth and Family Services out there had prior complaints that got lost in the system. And then the sheriff's office never followed up on some of the reports about this boyfriend. Had someone done their job, this little boy may have been in a different home and he may still be alive today. So through my reporting and digging, the governor got involved. People got fired at those agencies. And so when people talk about journalism and how, the, how it can make a difference, we have such an incredible platform to, to, to do the ultimate community service for people uh, and to actually affect change. And I think that's why I still have such a romantic association with uh, with journalism. More important now than ever, right? Yes. Remembering that perspective. Favorite interview that you've ever given? Oh, Don Rickles. Mm. Don Rickles, he's on my um, uh, refrigerator. There's a picture of me with him. Um, he came through. <laughs> he came through. I've also interviewed Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead, and I should say that, but Don Rickles was my favorite. Just the funniest man I've ever met in my life. One of the funniest comedians of all time this guy was on Carson he was buddies with Frank Sinatra and I got to interview him before he came to Santa Fe once and then I got to meet him backstage and it was just a laugh riot uh, you know I'm like uh, Mr. Rickles have you ever been to Santa Fe he says why would I want to go to Santa Fe the mail doesn't even go to Santa Fe <laughs> 
and it was just this laugh riot. And um, and I got to hang out with him backstage before the show. <laughs> and I brought my boyfriend with me. I had I just love talking about this stuff. I brought my boyfriend with me, and and Rickles is sitting there in his tuxedo, drinking a vodka or whatever. And he keeps looking at my partner. He's like, who is this guy? I'm like, oh, Mr. Rickles, I brought my, I didn't say you could bring anybody. <laughs> and he just ripped on my poor boyfriend for like, and then I got to hang out with him in, in Las Vegas again after that. Just the kindest, warmest soul uh, we lost, I guess it was uh, a couple of years ago now. Easily my favorite interview. That's really cool. They say yeah. don't meet your heroes, but sometimes. That's not true. Yeah. I think you have to. Um, cause I met, I'd mentioned Bob, where's my hero, uh, man, that could be, be so meaningful. Yeah. We know, or I know, I should say that you're a big music guy. What yeah. is the favorite concert of yours that you've ever attended? Oh man. Whoo. Uh, you know, I could, I could tell you hundreds of stories of the times we would road trip and I would have a head full of LSD or mushrooms and things just turned out I would have spiritual experiences with those things. But I think the ultimate spiritual experience was after I got sober. And it was the first time I saw members of the Grateful Dead uh, sober. And this was their big, quote unquote, fare thee well shows out at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And um uh, and then, the, and then before that, there were shows out in California in the Bay Area, and uh, there's a Grateful Dead song called "Wharf Rat," which is uh, about it's a song about a guy, a homeless guy, who's an alcoholic who's down on his luck, and it's actually that song is the name of a group of sober deadheads that go to hmm. shows called the Wharf Rats. Oh, that's awesome. It's great, and there's a and there's a uh, the chorus of that song is, uh, you know, he talks about being on his luck, why he doesn't have any money. And then then there's a moment of uh, serenity where he says, but I'll get back on my feet someday, the good Lord willing, if he says I may. I know the life I'm living is no good. I'll live the life that I should. I'm getting that slightly wrong, but that's about what it is. And my buddy turns to me. He's like, what are you going to do if they play that song? I always get choked up when I talk about it. And sure enough, they did it. And uh, I was just, I just collapsed into my friend's arms and just cried. It was a song about sobriety from my favorite band, and I'm there to witness it. Sober. Sober. Knowing that I had dodged a bullet, I sh- you know, there were times I should have been in jail. I should have gone to prison. I should have gone to federal prison. There were times I overdosed but I was alive to see it. There's an irony with music in that way because your favorite experience you were sober for, it's like the first time you listen to music when you're high, it's like, well, this is the only thing (laughs) anyone should ever be doing. That's a really good point. I always tell people music is so much better sober because I pay attention to it more, especially Mm -hmm. the kind of music I like because I like uh, jazz is first and foremost the thing I listen to 90% of the time. And, And the dead who jam and and to follow what they're doing, which can sometimes last for several minutes, you really have to pay attention. And when you're high, it's clouded. Um, music is so much more interesting sober. It really is. Yeah. Plus, you don't have to worry about passing out at set break, right? <laughs> That's really the key, I think. <laughs> and finally, Vic, uh, what is your escape now from work, from from the hardships of life? It's, it's obviously not drugs. What, what sort of do you turn to? 
uh, Frasier on Netflix. <laughs> no, I, well, that's true. But actually, two things. One, my dog, who I love and adore, Ryder, um, she's a rescue dog. When I first got her, uh, she, would, she didn't want to have anything to do with humans. She would cower under a table for days. Uh, but I worked with her a lot and now she's my best friend and, and, and she is, when I'm done after a long day, she's the one who I just want to just cuddle with. Um, so, you know, there is something to be said about dogs rescuing us. Also meditation. Mm. Meditation has saved my life. Um, I used to think that meditation was something that, uh, you know, hippies from Boulder did or something that didn't mean anything to me when I'm doing a bunch of cocaine or meth in the bathroom. Um, just, but to be able to close my eyes and to focus on one thing and one thing only, and that's that breath going in and out for 10, 15, 20 minutes or whatever has been a game changer. And it allows me to see what thoughts of mine are real because most of the things that affect us in our mind aren't real thoughts. Like, oh, why hasn't that girl called me back yet or whatever? Oh, that person must hate me, right? Probably not. Right. But it's all in your head. And, and that's the beautiful thing about meditation is I'm able to let go of a lot of these resentments that may drive me toward using again. I suffer a little bit from depression. And, and I think one of the biggest steps for me was learning okay you don't have to listen to these thoughts they'll be there right they're maybe i would say they are real but you don't have to place any value behind them right no and congratulations for saying that that you suffer with with depression and that may sound like a, a strange thing to say but seriously to to be able to just say that in front of a microphone is a is a brave and a very cool thing to do because we have to talk about our problems right absolutely Otherwise, yeah. you'll never even come to terms with it yourself. You'll never get better, yeah. but you can get better. It's not easy, but it's not as hard as we think. And it's also just more prevalent than we. Th I mean, not everyone's doing cocaine on a on a toilet. <laughs> no, in between, oh, man, spots on the air. But but yeah. you know, they, everyone's going through something, and and there there are a lot of common denominators in the way that we can sort of recover and become healthier, regardless of what the the problem was that that brought us to these dark places. You know. Absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, to close with the Grateful Dead and I close, you know, we will get by, we will survive. I b believe that, that there's nothing so great that we cannot overcome. I believe that. Man, you are an awesome dude. You are an interesting oh, guy. Oh, buddy, thank I you. I appreciate your perspective. Uh, it's been cool getting to know you and thanks for coming on, man. Hey, listen, I'm thrilled. Thank you so much for talking to me and you keep up the incredible work at Thank Stiffs. You, I, I follow that. you guys religiously. So, awesome. yeah. All right, man. Hey, go Nuggets. We'll get lunch. Go Nuggets. Later.